we've been talking about the Catholic Church, and we are talking about the false doctrines of the Catholic Church. We've been on it a while. We're going to have it. Some, we're going to talk about a couple of them this week, and we're going to talk about a couple of them next week, and then we'll be done with that. All right. Uh, there's a lot of things to talk about, though, and, and honestly, we could talk about some more things. But what do we say? The first error of the Catholic Church is Johan. That they're the only true church. What's the second one that we talked about? Jackson? Alex? Nope, that was the third one, but I'll give you that one. Tradition is equal with Scripture. We talked about the priesthood, second, right? Tradition is equal with Scripture. And then we talked about two of them in a row that were pretty close. Peter and the Pope. Peter and the Pope. Number two is the priesthood. So that's number four. Number five. Number six has to do with Mary. What do we call that? Tucker. Belief about Mary. What do we call that? Do you remember? Mariolatry, right. Uh, number seven was the sacraments. So what are the sacraments? Give me the first one. Brother Eric. Baptism. And then after baptism comes... Uh, those baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two that we believe in, but what are the, what are the seven that the Catholic Church has? So baptism, and then comes what? Josh? It's, yep, but it's not the next one. You're baptized, and then you are confirmed. So confirmation is the second one. The third one we talked about, well, we didn't really talk about it. We mentioned it, and that was it. The priesthood, or holy orders. And then comes Mass. What's Mass called in the Catholic Church? Eucharist, very good. And then we had which one after that? Marriage is the last one. Or is it the seventh one? It's the, se it's the sixth one, second to last one. Penance. Penance, right? Which is what you do to get your sins forgiven. Then marriage and then the anointing of the sick. Right? That's the seven. And then what did we talk about the last time? That error of the Catholic Church. Purgatory. Very good. So then tonight, we're going to actually cover three of them tonight. And the first one is the degrees of sin. I've mentioned it a couple different times, uh, but we're actually going to talk about it now. And, and we're not going to spend a long time on it. Uh, I want to look at a few Bible verses, and then we're going to move on to the next, the next false doctrine. But the Roman Catholic Church divides sin into two degrees. They have the mortal sins and the venial sins. Mortal sins are what they say are, are, are sins that results in eternal punishment. Um, basically, you're not coming out. You're going to spend eternity in hell. You don't go to purgatory, get your sins burned off, and come back. You're going to hell forever. Uh, and then venial sins are the ones that are thought to have a lesser consequence. But uh, the, the Catholic Church has, has no complete list of which sins are mortal sins and which sins are venial sins. Uh, but normally the mortal sins are considered to be the, the trespasses of the Ten Commandments and, and uh, never confessed. Um, sins that involve immorality, um, failure to attend weekly Mass, or at least say confession yearly at the very least. Uh, sins, uh, venial sins are things like cheating, um, and forgiveness of, of mortal sins is, is received primarily in two ways according to the Roman Catholic teaching, and that's through baptism and that's through confession. And that's how, you get those, that's how you get that forgiveness of sins. Uh, if you don't do those things, then those sins are never forgiven. And, and then that's obviously what we talked about last week, where you're going to spend a whole lot longer time in purgatory. Um, but at baptism, your past 
mortal sins are washed away, which is why they're so intent on baptizing babies. If a baby is baptized, then they're not in danger of, of spending eternity in hell because they've had, their, they've had their mortal sins that they inherited from Adam completely washed away, which... Okay, we talked about baptism, and I'm not going to take a lot more time to talk about that, but you think about uh, why it would be so important to a Catholic to baptize a baby, right? We're all born with that sin nature. We're all born with the sins that we inherited from Adam. If you can get baptized in the Catholic Church at six weeks old, then all of those sins are washed away, and then it's only things that you do in your life that are going to have to be taken care of, right? Um, but then after the age of seven... Um, that's kind of what they consider to be their age of accountability because after the age of seven, uh, you have to confess your, your mortal sins to a priest for forgiveness, which would be, like I said, sins of, of uh, breaking the Ten Commandments, immorality, that kind of stuff. And then uh, venial sins are forgiven supposedly by good works, by prayers, by fasting, and so on. Let's look at a couple things here about what the Bible has to say about that. And again, there's not a lot to say about that, that other than the fact that they break them into two different degrees of sins. In other words, there's serious sins and not so serious sins. I, I think that you probably don't even really need to look in the Bible. Most of you would probably at least have a verse or two that you could point to where that would say that doesn't make any sense or that doesn't, it's not backed up by the Bible. Um, but according to the word of God, all sins are serious and all sins are deadly, right? Every single sin, no matter how great we see it in the eyes of God is a sin and it, it, it des we deserve death because of it, right? There's no biblical basis for this Catholic division between so-called mortal sins and, and venial sins. James chapter two and verse 10, you're right there, says this. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. That's not the right one, is it? For who, I don't know where, which one I got that one from. But for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. I, I, must, have, I must have done James 3.10 or something when I wrote it down. But at least I'm here. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in how many points? One. You're guilty of the entire law, right? It doesn't matter how great the sin is. It doesn't say whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one great way, he's guilty of all of it. Offend in one point. That means anything. All right? Turn over to Romans chapter 1. While you're turning over there, I want to read to you Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4. I've got the list there. You can write those verses down if you want to go back and look at the ones that we're not actually going to look up. But Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. It doesn't say any breakdown of that, right? It doesn't say the soul that sinneth greatly, it shall die. It says the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now, Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look at a few verses here, uh, has a list of all these different sins. And we're told at the end of that that they which commit those sins are worthy of death. Well, here's the list, starting in verse number 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, uh, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Now, he's not necessarily listing these things to say these are the things that cause death, but what he's saying is, these are sins that all cause death. No, I mean, I, God doesn't divide sins into little and big sins. Less deadly, 
mortal and venial sins. I mean, look at the end of verse number 29. It says, whisperers. That's considered as evil as a murderer. It's considered, you know, uh, covetousness is, is considered as evil as, as, as fornication. Being unmerciful is as evil as hating God. I mean, being unmerciful, that doesn't sound like a very serious sin. And I'm sure to the Catholic Church, that would be considered a venial sin, right? To God, it's a mortal sin. All of them are because of what he says. They which commit such things are worthy of death. What's the punishment for those sins? Death. For the wages of sin is death, right? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Well, somebody might be thinking at that point, well, if all sin is, is, is punishable by death, if all sin is mortal, how can we have any hope of escaping hell? Well, turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. That's a good question. And it's, it's a question that most of us know the answer to, if not all of us know the answer to. The answer is the blood of Jesus Christ, right? That's it. That's the only way out. Blood of Jesus Christ through his blood, we can receive that forgiveness of every sin. And it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we, see, we, that we can receive that forgiveness. He says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. That's the only answer to our sin problem, personal faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and so we have to ask that question then. Is that where the hope of your salvation rests? There's a lot of people within the Catholic Church tonight who are resting in the fact that their sins have been forgiven by a priest or their sins maybe are not mortal sins or they've not committed a mortal sin after they've had that confession, right? But only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse sin and nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ can do it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? There is no distinction in the Bible between mortal and venial sins. All sins are mortal to God, and all sins have to be washed away and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Which brings us then to number 10. Number 9, error was degrees of sin. Number 10 is images and vain rituals. We've, we're going to talk about this for, for a few minutes, and I'm, I'm going to read uh, a, a quote that's fairly extensive, but it's taken from a, from a correspondence course that was designed by the Catholic Church for people who were, who were uh, interested in becoming Catholics. But the Catholic Church has really, since the early centuries of its existence, allowed and encouraged its members to seek blessing and spiritual help through images. We're going to talk about that in, in what that means in just a little bit. But this, 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 this correspondence course is, is sent to everybody. This is not something that, you know, some of these religions have things that they're trying to hide because they don't want people to find out about them until they're in and all this stuff. The Catholic Church has no problem telling you this is what we're about. This is, this is their introduction correspondence course, so to speak. And I, and I believe it's still in use today. Now, correspondence courses are not near as popular as they used to be. Most of them are done online and stuff like that now. But let me, let me get into this and, and start reading through, through this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop and point a few things out here. But it says this, every Catholic makes this sign of the cross when he enters a Catholic church, which, you know, is, is of course, you know, you see people do that kind of stuff all the time. That's the sign of the cross. In Mass, the officiating priest makes it more than 30 times. Catholics the world over consider the frequent use of the sign of the cross an indispensable weapon against evil in all its forms. Now, we're talking about images and we're talking about vain rituals. We're kind of combining these two things together. That's a vain ritual. They're doing that as a way to ward off evil spirits, essentially. Here's another one. The metal, and, and if you will, please um, put, the, put the next picture up there. So you see what we're talking about. This is, this is what we're talking about. And if you look around the edge of that thing, it says, O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. 
I'm going to talk about that as I, as I read this. The medal worn by a Catholic is blessed by the church. This is what makes it a sacramental for the Catholic and gives it value. It carries with it the prayer of the church. One of the most common medals used by Catholics is one popularly called the miraculous medal. That's what this thing is here. The pattern of the medal was manifested in a vision by the Blessed Virgin to a young French girl. The countless extraordinary favors obtained as a result of the reverent use of this medal have earned for it the title. I watched a couple of YouTube videos uh, as I was putting this thing together. Uh, people explaining the miracles and the power behind wearing this medal. And they wear it everywhere. I mean, they, they do not take it off unless I think about the only time. Uh, and, and, and actually, in particular, there's one lady that, that, that um, uh, was explaining this and talking about this. And just, just a regular, I think she's like a homemaker mom or something. She does all kinds of different um, uh, homemaking type things, has, has a video doing that kind of stuff. And she said, a lot of people are asking about this, this necklace. She said, I wear this thing everywhere. I, I never take it off. I wear it to bed. I wear it in the shower. I wear it everywhere. And she said, the only time I've ever taken this thing off was I had to have a CAT scan one time, and they made me take it off. That's when I took it off. But I wear this thing everywhere because, it, I mean, I, I can give witness to the power of this necklace when I wear it, you know, uh, and just the, the miracles that I see that God does. And, and so this whole, this whole thing, um, and, and there's a lot to it. If you look up Miraculous Medal, you'll find, you'll, um, you'll, you'll, Miraculous Medallion, you'll find a lot of these different things about it. There's so much about this thing, but... Um, you know, when I wear this thing, I have, I have power that I, can, that I can only describe as being from God. And, and God, when I've been wearing this thing, God has protected me in ways that, that I, I know he, it, would not have been, it would not have happened that way had I not been wearing this medal. I mean, that's what they, and that's what they're, you know, attributing it to is this power. It has to be prayed over by a priest, and it has to have holy water sprinkled on it quite often. Basically, every time you go to confession, you get holy water sprinkled on this medallion. And that's the only way that it actually has, you know, this, this miraculous power to it. Um, but this vision of, of Mary came to this French girl. By the way, the, um, the cross there, the 12 stars that go around it, and um, everything has significance. I'm not going to take the time to do it tonight. But here and here are both, uh, one of them is called the Sacred Heart, and I forget, the, I forget exactly what the other one is called, but... This, is, this represents Jesus, and of course the big M represents Mary as being the foundation of the church. And um, you, you can look at, there's lots of different videos and things, and I'm, I'm trying to shorten it tonight, so I don't want to go into too much detail about it. But uh, there's also lots of stories of people who say, you know, uh, somebody who's not a Catholic who puts this medal on and is kind of, you know, maybe interested in religion. There's a lot of conversion power in it. People who wear that medal are converted to Catholicism by the power of that medal and the miracles that they see that are happening as a result of wearing that thing on, their, on a necklace around their neck. Um, but it has to be blessed by a priest, has to be sprinkled with holy water. And it's just, it's, again, it's a vain ritual, right? We know that it absolutely has nothing to do with that. Uh, coincidence, uh, I'm, I wouldn't say chance, because God allows everything to happen and does everything in our lives, but when you're looking at it through that lens, when you're looking through it, at it through those eyes, that's what you're going to see, and that's what they're looking for. They want to give that credit to something, and so they give this credit to a medal that they're wearing around their necks. Here's uh, continuing on. The Catholic Church has approved the special devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus, which is what I mentioned there. Uh, is, is on the bottom of, is on, on the back bottom of that of that miraculous medal. But 
This devotion was given a new impetus in 1675 when a pious nun, Sister Margaret Mary Alcacoque, had a vision of Christ. In this vision, Christ asked what the world, that the world be made to appreciate the tremendous love which he had for mankind, and that was to be done by special pictures and devotions which he described. You might even find yourself silently whispering a short prayer that Catholics say on viewing a representation of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Sacred Heart of Jesus, I put my trust in thee. You'll be better for so acting. This is, this is still part of this correspondence course. If you go to the next picture, that is the Sacred Heart of Jesus there on the, on the center of, of his chest. And, and if, you, if you type in Sacred Heart of Jesus, there are hundreds and hundreds of images, different pictures of Jesus that show up. But that's what these people then carry. And maybe you've been in somebody's house who is a Catholic, and you see the, that they have these pictures and images up all over the place. So again, images, vain rituals, things that, that you know, to them mean so much, but to us, it absolutely means nothing. It, it, you know, the heart of Jesus Christ, I mean, you know, we know what his heart is toward us, and it's not that we sit there and worship a picture, right? Um, but... And again, they use that, they use that image, that, that sacred heart of Jesus in, in lots of other places. But Jesus was not some wimpy, soft-looking little thing like that. I can tell you that much right now. Um, you know, especially, especially, okay, regardless of the fact that Jesus Christ is, a, is, is you know, uh, a representation of what a man ought to be. He was a carpenter. And I can guarantee you he didn't look like that by the time he was 30 years old or whatever else, you know. Um, but the, just the fact that that's, that's their representation of Jesus, you know? Um, but anyway, the sacred heart, and it's, it's, on, it's not only on Jesus' chest, but a lot of times you'll see it in an image of Jesus uh, and then kind of printed on, that, on his center chest area. But they have, they have medallions and necklaces and all kinds of stuff that are just that, that uh, um, sacred heart. But uh, the sacred heart of Jesus is actually what it's called. But continuing on, it is a pious practice of Catholics to receive the Eucharist on the first Friday of nine successive months. This practice comes from one of the revelations of our Lord to M Margaret Mary Alcoque. In this vision, he made many wonderful promises to those who would observe this practice. The rosary, in it, we ask that Mary will use her influence with her son to obtain for us all good things for our present necessities, and especially at the hour of our death. The rosary is a powerful weapon against the evils of our time. And so, um, again... You've probably seen people with rosaries hanging around uh, the mirror in their car with a cross on the end of it, or people, you know, praying the rosary and so on. I mean, to me, this is no different than a witch doctor ceremony in the middle of the jungle in Africa. And I, and I, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way at all. What I'm saying is we're, we're praying the rosary, we're using beads to ward off evil spirits. What, what do you think that's going to do? You know, again, it's a vain ritual. It's something that we don't find in the Bible. It's something that was completely made up by some pope along the line somewhere, and they're using that as a way to warn off evil spirits? That's, that's demonic at the very least, right? Um, again, but they say the rosary is a powerful weapon against the evils of our time. We hope that in performing the devotions sanctioned by the church, we may draw God's attention to our needs. In blessing holy water, the priest prays that Quote, wherever this water shall be sprinkled through the invocation of thy name, every hostile intent of the unclean spirit may be taken away. This is the spirit in which and the purpose for which Catholics use holy water. Again, another vain ritual. The last thing when it comes to this is that the church, the Catholic church, by the power given to her by Christ, declares that the wearing of these scapulars, 
just special clothing. I'm going to show you a couple of pictures of those in a minute. They've been blessed by Rome with good dispositions will aid in the forgiveness of the punishment due to sin and bring down God's blessings upon the wearer. Well, there's two types of scapulars. And if you go to the next picture, this is a monastic scapular. And you'll see them in lots of different ways. But you see these two guys uh, in the foreground there, one, one that's facing backwards and the other guy is facing front. You can't really see it, but it does the same thing in the front and the back. Those are, those are considered to be scapulars or special clothes that have been blessed by Rome. Only the monastic scapular is this, it's, it's a length of cloth that's suspended both in the front and the back over the shoulders, um, uh, but it's, and, and, it, and it comes in all different colors, shapes, sizes, and I think a lot of times they use that to, to even distinguish between different monasteries. And, and, and kind of like, um, you know, different sports teams wear different jerseys to, to uh, you know, to denote their teams, I, they kind of use it in that way. Um, you can tell what order of monastery you're from based on the type and the size and the length and all of that stuff of the scapular that you're wearing. Um, but but that's, that's, that's part of the habit that monks and nuns, who are, who are the women in the church, uh, wear. The devotional scapular, which we see in the next picture, is, is a lot smaller, and it, it really did evolve from the monastic scapular, but because it's not really practical for people who are not part of that monastery or whatever else, to walk around wearing a scapular, they designed these things, one to be worn down the front and one to be worn down the back. And, and honestly, usually they're only a couple inches tall, a couple inches wide at the most, but they're worn by individuals who are not members of a monastic order. And so, you know, they can be cloth, they can be wood, they can be um, uh, laminated paper even. Just, they're just a few inches tall, a few inches wide some kind of religious image or some kind of religious text that is put in there, uh, every one of them is different. I mean, I, I, I can't even really tell what is on that one, but it's, it's, just, an, it's just a man-made image. And there's all kinds. I mean, you can go on Catholic, you know, um, websites and buy any kind of different, you know, images and stuff that you want to put in there. And so we're going to talk about the, the, the last thing that we're going to talk about is um, prayers to the saints. And so depending on what you need and what you want, you can put different saints in those scapulars and wear them on your front and back and, and whatever else. And so, but um, if someone, I think if someone, because there's a lot of people who say, well, that stuff's not really used today. Uh, people don't use it as much today. They don't, they don't do as much with the vain rituals. And I mean, they don't call it vain rituals, but the rituals and the images and all of that kind of stuff. Let me read you this quote. This comes from um, a Catholic theologian who travels very widely in international Catholic circles. He said this, the rosary, which seemed about to vanish into the grave, has been reborn. I know enough of leaders and directors of pilgrimages to lords to know that their devotion to the Blessed Virgin is not in question. They're, they're very much, and, and, and honestly, there's kind of been a rebirth of these things. Um, different popes obviously put different emphases, emphasis on different things. And um, the last couple have really put an emphasis on these images and these rituals and that kind of thing. Well, let's, let's talk about what the Bible has to say about it. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Because all of these practices, these vain rituals, these images and everything are foreign to the New Testament. Uh, there's no biblical authority for, for any of these things that we've just talked about. The rosary, the, the scapulars, the, uh, any of it. There's, there's no biblical basis for it at all. Sanctification or holiness and blessing don't come through religious rituals, through images, through cloth, through water, through pilgrimages, through holy shrines, none of those things. Churches have no power to, to make those things holy. 
Uh, they have no power to bless them. They have no power to do any of those things, according, at least according to the Bible. And so all the things uh, that we just talked about are foreign to the New Testament. If we want to be holy before God, to be sanctified, to be, to, to be blessed, and we have to, we have to go about it. We have to receive it in a biblical way, not through a church or a priest or any of those other things. The Bible says that we're sanctified through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ there in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. By the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. John 17, 17, you probably know that one. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So we're sanctified through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're sanctified through the word of God. And lastly, you can turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're sanctified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. None of those things have anything to do with the Catholic Church, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. And such were some of you. He's talking about a list of all those different things that they have been essentially saved from. But you are sanctified. But you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So no, no biblical basis for that whatsoever. Let's, let's move quickly then to the last thing that we want to talk about tonight, and that is the prayers of the saints. Um, or really prayers to the saints, not prayers of the saints, prayers to the saints. The Roman Catholic Church has a list of people who have been officially proclaimed a saint. Um, and the process of sainting someone is called canonization, and the list of all of those who have been canonized is called the Roman martyr, martyrology. But Catholics are encouraged then to own images of these saints. And... Um, since, since 1234, when this started, there's, there's been over 3,000 people that have been sainted or canonized by the Catholic Church. Let me read you this. A canonization is a solemn pronouncement by which the Supreme Pontiff declares that a particular person, while on earth, practiced Christian virtue in a heroic degree and may now be honored by the, by the faithful as a saint. A canonization is the outcome of a long and exacting examination bearing on the words and deeds of the servant of God and on the reality of at least four miracles attributed to his intercession. As patron saints, they are in heaven and very close to God and very powerful with him. A saint is not only a protector to invoke, but also a model to imitate. So let me talk to you about this, because I, I, I actually started, I wouldn't say down a rabbit hole, but I got pretty interested in this because I know this is something that we've talked about a lot. What makes somebody a saint? What is the process to become a saint? Well, anybody can become a saint in the Catholic Church, but that, that, that status is only granted to someone after their death. Uh, and there are five steps to sainthood. So let's go through them. Number one, step one is to wait five years. Or don't. Because the, the process is that you cannot, be, you cannot be started through the process of sainthood for five years uh, after the person. You, you have to be dead for at least five years before they can even start the process. And that's, that's to allow time for emotions following somebody's death to calm down. Uh, you have somebody that's as popular as, say, Mother Teresa. Well, Mother Teresa definitely needs to be a saint. So she died. We need to make her a saint tomorrow, right? That's, that's what it's there for. Um, but, um, and, and really it's there so that they can look at that person's case objectively. Okay, Mother Teresa had all of this fanfare surrounding her, and when she died, it was this big deal, and we need to make her a saint. Five years after somebody's dead gives them time to look at it objectively, or so they say. But, um, in, in fact, by the way, I thought this was pretty interesting. Um, saint I don't even know how you say this guy's name, Bede, I guess, but it's B-E-D-E. -E. He was a theologian. He died in 735, 735. He had to wait 1160, 
four years before he was declared a saint. He was declared a saint in 1899. Uh, why it took that long or how it took that long, I have no idea. But, but the Pope can make an exception to that rule of waiting five years. Uh, and, and actually, they did that in the case of Mother Teresa. Two years after she died, they started her on the process of sainthood, and she became a saint. Mother Teresa is considered to be a saint. So step one is wait five years, or don't, if the, if the Pope says sooner. Step two is whether or not they're a servant of God. So after this five years is up, um, a waiver is granted, would, which would be the other option, so five years or the waiver. Then the bishop of the diocese where the person died can actually open up an investigation into the life of the individual that they're talking about here that's died. So to see whether or not their lives line up and, and is sufficient enough um, and has sufficient holiness and virtue to be considered for sainthood. So they, they process a formal request for that individual to be considered for sainthood. It's submitted to a Vatican tribunal. Uh, and then that request has to explain how the person lived the life of holiness, purity, kindness, devotion, all of those other things. And then if that person meets the requirements, then the tribunal officially recognizes that person as a servant of God. How nice is that, right? But they have to go through it. And by the way, in that process, they air all the dirty laundry. They pull all the skeletons out of the closet. I mean, they look at everything to make sure that this person was truly holy and whatever else. Step three, then, is what, what they call um, heroically virtuous, which is basically showing proof of a heroic, uh, of a life of heroic virtue. And so that tribunal declares that person a servant of God, and then that report is sent to the congregation for the causes of the saints at the Vatican. That's the name of, the, of this, this tribunal. So the congregation, it's comprised of theologians and cardinals and archbishops and bishops. They study that person's life. They look at that person's writings uh, to make sure that all of their writings are in line with the teachings of the Catholic Church. Then they, that candidate has to be found to possess four cardinal virtues and three theological virtues. The cardinal virtues are prudence, justice, temperance, and courage. How you figure out if that person had those four things, I'm not exactly sure. But then they also have to have the three theological virtues, which are faith, hope, and, and charity. Um, and if they have those seven, then the congregation approves the case, passes it on to the pope. If the pope decides that that person did a, live a, did live a life of heroic virtue, then they can be called venerable. And there's actually people who have made it to the venerable stage that never made it to the saint stage. But then there's the next stage, and that is step four, and that is beatification and miracles. If the person that they're talking about was martyred, they were killed for their faith, and, it's, and it was very obviously proven that that person died for their faith. Uh, by the way, that was changed in 2017. Um, you don't have to be a martyr where you died for your faith. You can, you can be a martyr where you gave your life for another person. That could be uh, somebody that was sentenced to death and you took their place. That could be a mother who um, um, chose not to take life-saving measures to save her own life so that, the life so that her baby could be born, and then she died when the baby was born. That's now considered to be a martyr's death. Um, most of the, I mean, I don't know of anybody that's actually been sainted because of that, but um, anyway, uh, that person can be beatified, and their name is blessed without further investigation. Um, because they died as a martyr. And that's, that is, that's, that's locally recognized, basically within their, within their um, community, their diocese, their region, whatever else. They can be worshipped in that city if they died as a martyr, and that's where the process stopped. If they didn't die as a martyr, 
then to reach the next stage, which is beatification, which again, some have reached that venerable stage, some reach the beatification stage, and some reach sainthood. You can, you can be anywhere in that process, but the beatification is different than sainthood. Uh, if, if the person was not martyred and they want to reach the next stage, then a miracle has to be attributed to the prayers of that person uh, or made to that person after their death. So let's say Mother Teresa dies and somebody's praying to Mother Teresa and they receive a miracle because of the prayer to Mother Teresa, then that is considered a miracle that would get them to that beatification process. I, I had this tumor, and, and this is the kind of stuff you hear. I had a tumor. And I prayed to Mother Teresa after she died, and the tumor disappeared, and the doctors couldn't explain it, whatever else. So that's a miracle that's contributed to Mother Teresa after her death. And so that allows her to go into that beatification process. So the prayers being granted are seen as proof that that individual is already in heaven, that they went to God on behalf of that person who prayed to them. God gave them that request and sent it back to that person. That's, that's the miracle. Uh, but those incidents have to be verified, quote-unquote, by evidence before they're accepted as miracles. Here's, here's an example. John Paul II, the Vatican experts examined medical evidence for an allegedly miraculous cure from Parkinson's disease of a 49-year-old French nun, Sister Marie Simone Pierre Norman. Now, she said that she and her fellow nuns prayed for the intercession of Pope John Paul II after his death. Her sudden cure had no logical medical explanation, so it had to have been John Paul II that gave that miracle. So that issues him on his, on his way toward that process of sainthood. After beatification, then the candidate is given the title of blessed. So you have venerable, and then you have blessed, and then what's the next one? Saint, right? Saint whoever. So um, I, 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 I want to cover these quickly, but I thought this was pretty interesting. Miracles, they can have miracles of healing, attributed to the saint's intervention or contact with relics belonging to the saint. So let's just say that this person owned a, uh, uh, a leather bag and somebody touched that leather bag and they got healed of whatever disease it was that they had. That's considered a miracle of healing. So any of those relics, any, and a relic could be anything that they owned. Uh, miracle of liquefaction, which is the body of the saint or the representation thereof liquefies each year on the day of his or her death. How, how you can prove that, I have no idea. But, I mean, what a weird thing, right? Liquefaction. Here's another one. Incorruptibility. The body of the person who is already buried does not decay. So if their body is still preserved, you know, 50 years later, that's a miracle. And that's, that's, that's considered to be a miracle in the process of sainthood. Another one is odor of sanctity. Get this. The body expels a sweet odor instead of the normal posthumous odors. Kevin knows what that smells like, right? The, the, the odor of death. When's the last time you've been to, a, uh, to the medical examiner's office and somebody's putting off a sweet odor, right? But if they do, that's, that's considered a miracle, and that's, that's all they need to make it through that process. Um, and, and, and one of the things that you see almost always and, and actually, almost always when somebody's going through the process of sainthood, they died 100, 200, 300 years ago, and people are looking back. And so it's allegedly, but one of the miracles that you see often is called is stigmata, where the, the body shows signs of the five crucifixion wounds of Jesus Christ. So after they're dead, they all of a sudden had these marks on their hands or marks on their feet or marks on their side. Stigmata, that's considered to be a miracle. Another one is levitation. Basically, the saint was able to float. Read lots of different stories, but one of them... Um, one of them said that um, Christmas carols were being played and sung in the church, and this guy 
floated to the front of the altar and then knelt there in a floating position while he prayed. That was considered a miracle. That happened in like the 1600s, and this guy's going through the process right now. I mean, there's no way to go back and prove that, but there's stories about it, and so now that's considered a miracle that happened during this guy's life. Uh, bilocation is another one where a person is able to appear in two places at once. But then that's the miracle process. The last one is that last step, that step five is canonization. That's the final step in declaring that this person that has died is actually a saint. And to reach that stage, a second miracle has to be attributed to that person. So the first one, I prayed to him after he died and I got healed. I touched something and he was healed. That, that would be two of them. But they, they have to have at least two um, in order to be... Um, uh, oh, I, t I take that back. I said that wrong. There has to be a miracle attributed to this person after beatification. So he's beatified, and then another miracle takes place to be able to get to that sainthood. Um, martyrs? Martyrs only need one. So if they have one miracle attributed to them and they were martyred for their faith, then they, they reach that second stage. The second miracle of John Paul II was um, uh, somebody, somebody reported a serious brain injury a serious brain illness, and prayed to John Paul. The illness went away. That's his second miracle. After his beatification, he becomes a saint. Uh, but during that canonization ceremony, the Pope conducts a special mass. He reads all these different uh, facts about this person's life and everything else. Hundreds of thousands of people show up for these, these canonization ceremonies. What happens after the canonization ceremony? Well, the saint's name is added to the catalog of saints, and every member of the Roman Catholic Church can worship and pray to that saint. Churches can be dedicated to that saint. The saint's name is invoked in prayers. Masses can be offered in honor of the saint. Feast days are celebrated in the saint's memory. Saint's relics are enclosed in vessels and publicly honored. Images can be made showing that saint with a halo around their head now. I mean, it's just all kinds of different stuff, which, again, probably the most recent one is, is Mother Teresa. I think she was sainted in 1999. Um, and, or maybe, maybe just a couple years after that, but right around that time. And now all of these things are, are able to be attributed to her as well. Let's look at this very quickly. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. What does the Bible have to say about that? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. We don't need saints to go to God on our behalf. We don't need saints to go to Mary to go to God on our behalf. We don't need saints to go to Mary to go to Jesus to go to God on our behalf. Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and men, right? We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. One mediator mean, means one, not two or three or 70 or 3,000. There's one mediator. Mary, no other person can mediate between God and men. There's no support in the New Testament for that. Turn over to Revelation chapter 19. The Bible nowhere teaches Christians to seek help from the dead. Right? Where are we told to go to saints to go to God on our behalf? Right? The only support for that doctrine is found in, in the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees. We're going to talk about the apocrypha next week. But the apocryphal writings are not inspired by, by God. They're not, they're not inspired scripture, and so we can't use them as support for doctrinal anything. Right? But to make images of men and then bow down and pray to those images is idolatry. Even angels wouldn't allow men to bow before them. We see that in Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. This is John talking. And he said unto me, See thou, thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Go over a couple pages over to Revelation 22, verse 8. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. 
And when I heard and, and when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it now, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of the book. Worship God. Even the angels know. You don't worship us, you don't worship people, you worship God. Right? The Bible preaches teaches us to pray in the name of Jesus Christ, not dead men or in the name of dead saints or anybody else, right? Not one example in the New Testament of somebody praying to a saint. Nowhere did they pray to Peter. Nowhere did they pray to Paul or John or any of the other apostles that had died by the time the New Testament was being written, right? The only way to God is through the sacrifice of and the name of Jesus Christ. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're done. This idea of sainthood is, is unscriptural. In the New Testament, the term saint is applied to all Christians, right? It's not just those who have unusual qualities. We see that in Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Hebrews, where it talks about the saints, right? And I think it's, I think it's even interesting that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul was addressing these carnal Christians in 1 Corinthians, and what did he call them? Saints. They were not unusual by any stretch, right? They, they had problems. They had issues. They were not holy like they should have been. They were not doing the stuff that they should have done. And yet Paul still called them saints because we're called saints because we're Christians. Not because we're special. We're saints because we have a special Savior. And that Savior has removed our sins before God. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. No saint anybody is going to do anything for us, right? You've heard of Saint Michael, the archangel. He's the one that protect, you know, the, the protector. A lot of the police officers carry Saint Michael, the archangel, coins in their pocket as a way for protection. And you see saint this and saint that, and you'll see people. Um, uh, it's, I, I, think it's, I think it's particularly prominent in like the Mexican culture and things, but you'll see these guys with, with these images of saints hanging from their mirrors and, and posted on their dashboard and sitting in their, you know, like the little spot there where your speedometer is and, and just all over in their houses and everything else because you can pray to these saints and these saints will go to God on your behalf for this specific whatever. Protection from this, protection from that, and all kinds of different stuff. And nowhere do we find that in the Bible. Nowhere do we find that in the Bible. And we have proof of the fact that Jesus Christ is the only one that we need, right? His blood is the only thing that can cleanse us. His mediation is the only mediation we need. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And those things are pretty obvious to us, but it's so sad that there's so many people that are, that are duped by that and think that all these things that are just traditions and rituals and all of these things that have just been come up with over the years are based in the Word of God. It's just because they don't know the Bible, right? And if you can take just one or two or three of these verses and show it to somebody who is not saved, show it to somebody who's Catholic and not saved, that might be all they need to, to understand that, wow, what else is the Catholic Church lying to me about, right? We're going to talk about the Apocrypha next week, and we're going to talk about celibacy next week. And that should get us to the end of, of what we're planning to talk about here with the Catholic Church. But we'll finish up there. We'll pray. We'll be done. Father, we love you. Give me thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for the word of God. I thank you for 
the truth that we find in it. I thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us, and I thank you that that's all we need. Pray that you help us to turn many to Jesus Christ because of the knowledge that we have and the understanding that we have about these different religions. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.